So the challenge today for Tom is to uh, sync my prior delivery of this material to another group while I just sit here and lip sync. <laughs> But if he doesn't do well at that, I'll actually have to deliver the material live. So welcome. Um, I thought we could do today is just initially just sit for a bit, just to collect ourselves. And then, um, as you can see, I have a map that we're going to cover today or at least a good part of it. And there'll be periods where I'll be presenting just some material for a short period of time, and then inviting a dialogue, because while I could speak all day about what's on here, I don't know if it's resonating with you or useful or if you're getting it or not. So I need the, need the input um, you to know where to go today, rather than me just going off on my trip. So uh, there'll be lots of opportunities for questions and answers and dialogue. And then we'll take a break mid-morning and we'll come back to have another presentation material and more dialoguing. And then we'll break for lunch and we'll do the same thing in the afternoon. So. How does that sound? Okay, good enough? You know? Like that. Okay. Um, just incidentally, uh, when Mark invited me to consider coming again uh, here, I asked for a suggestion or topic or something, and Mark said something about seven factors in practice, and I agreed not knowing what I was going to do. And then later, this, this idea of presenting it through the lens of this kind of material came to me. But it wasn't really until about 4 o'clock this morning that I <laughs> finally got the urgency, the feeling of urgency to actually think about what I'm going to do today. So it's like... <laughs> But I think I got an idea. So, <laughs> so thank you for the suggestion. It's um, there's a lot that could be said, of course, about the seven factors of awakening, and so I'm not going to try to say all that. I'm going to try to say what you can't find elsewhere on the internet. So whatever you can read on the internet, you're probably not going to get from me today. But other things, maybe. So uh, does everyone have uh, a map of the day? <laughs> if you didn't get one, that probably means you didn't sign in on the table that you can get <laughs> And there's other information there, including uh, mindful service jobs during the breaks that you might want to do to help take care of the center and make it nice and a friendly space for us today. Steve, you do introduce yourself. 
Oh, uh, I'm Steve. Oh, I can do it. There may be a few people who don't know who Steve is. So first of all, big welcome. Thank you very much. Steve, you had a wonderful talk last night. It will be up on the website for the show, thanks to Tom, so people who missed it can uh, hear it. Steve will also be talking tomorrow morning. Um, it probably will be crowded um, this morning. And uh, for those who don't know Steve, Steve and his partner, wife Kamala Masters, have been coming to the Twin Cities since 1994 to lead the annual Twin City Vipassana Collective Summer Retreat. And it's been a real support for many of the leaders and community members over the decades now, um, just as an annual time to dig deep into the practice with two very wonderful, experienced teachers. And we've also had the good fortune to have Steve come. This is the second time to do additional teachings. Uh, Steve has done a lot of study and practice with the Abhidhamma, kind of the Buddhist psychology, and, and integrating that into our lay lives and how to, how to find some real peace and happiness as lay people, busy lives, lots of responsibilities. So we're hope, hoping that this can be more than just two times, but we'll see. <laughs> and uh, uh, Steve and Kamala have a wonderful uh, vision for their land in, on Maui, and uh, they've been working on that for over 10 years now to develop a retreat place for experienced practitioners and also a practice place for the Maui Dharma community. So they've been working on that, and Steve has been a real institution at IMS at Massachusetts, in Massachusetts, the kind of grandmother institution, places like Common Ground, and he's been started out as staff and on the board, and then one of the guiding or senior teachers there now for a while, including leading the three-month retreat for many years. And finally, they gave you a break for a while. Let's <laughs> see how long that lasts. <laughs> So thanks everybody for coming. And uh, any questions about nuts and bolts before we begin? Steve covered some of that for those who came in late. Uh, there is a schedule up on a few places around the center, and Steve will guide us through the day. This is not a formal retreat, so there is speaking during the retreat during breaks. Thanks again. So let's just sit for the rest of the day, <laughs> and anything you don't understand by 4 o'clock, we'll pick it up. begin your sitting practice, uh, I'd like to ask you to pay very close attention to what you actually do between now, when we're just starting, and in the first few minutes of the sitting. I'm not going to tell you what to do, but just pay attention so that you can tell me what you do uh, later when I ask you.
So the topic today is the seven factors of awakening or seven factors of enlightenment. And as you no doubt have already heard, the Buddha was a great one for compiling lists of his teachings. There's the three factors and the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, the five spiritual faculties, the seven factors of enlightenment, the 52 mental factors, the 12 links of dependent origination, and the 29. It's endless. And actually, most of them can be used as a uh, template or a lens for viewing your practice or really uh, monitoring your practice and, and using them as a way to kind of gauge how you're doing uh, or to give you uh, some pointers as to uh, how to do, where to do, when to do. And the seven factors is a particularly useful uh, map or model of understanding practice. It's used more, it's used more often when people's practice is quite mature. Uh, when there's quite a lot of equanimity and a lot of balance in the mind already, then the subtlety of uh, the seven factors can be a really useful way of, or template or lens to view your practice experience through. But I think it can be equally useful uh, even in the beginning of practice. And uh, so I want to try to speak about the seven factors today as a form of uh, as a kind of diagnostic tool to use in your life, not just your formal practice of sitting on the cushion, but to use in your life to really uh, monitor Not just awareness, but just how you're relating to the experiences of your life. And then to use the seven factors as a way of recognizing where you have particular strength in your practice and where you have particular limitation or deficiency, you might say, or an imbalance in practice. And then to use the seven factors as a way of uh, pointing to an area of your mind that you can... Uh, enhance, really, or to uh, draw out in practice more. So I want to try to do that today. The, um, the seven factors uh, are known, the, seven, the sutra on the seven factors is known as the healing, the healing sutra, because when one of the monks at the time of the Buddha was ill, the Buddha asked one of his senior monks, it might have been Sariputra, I don't recall right now, to go to that other monk who was ill and to give him a talk on the seven factors of awakening. So that when he did that, the monk listening to the talk recognized the seven qualities or seven activities of mind that the seven factors refers to. And in doing so, was able to recognize deficiency and overabundance in his mind, bring his mental factors into balance. And a balanced mind gives rise to healthy materiality and thereby was cured 
just by listening to and practicing the seven factors as he listened to the, the discourse. Even when the Buddha himself was ill one time, he asked to be taught the seven factors. He asked one of his monks to speak of the seven factors to him, during which time he also practiced the seven factors and also was relieved of his symptoms of distress or disease. So we don't need to take this too literally and the quality of mind that the Buddha and our other enlightened or arahantic arahants at the time of him might have done, but still is known as the Healing Sutra and to the extent that we practice and cultivate these seven factors. Uh, we can also expect to at least be doing the best we can uh, with our mind to generate healthy conditions in our body. But we should be careful not to think that uh, if I practice with these seven factors and I still get ill, I must not be doing it right. Uh, that would be a little too much to expect. But nevertheless, we shouldn't totally dismiss it either. Because it's pretty pretty well documented, maybe from your own experience, and certainly it's becoming more uh, confirmed by Western uh, medical research that mindfulness, pure mindfulness awareness, has very powerful healing effect on the body and on uh, physical ailments or physical conditions that we would call disease. And they're just very intense. You know, this is not casual mindfulness. This is very intensive mindfulness and sustained over periods of time. It can have a pretty profound effect. And there's lots of documentation available for that. So we shouldn't dismiss that out of hand, but uh, take it with a grain of salt and check it out for ourselves, as the Buddha was always inviting uh, people to do, to listen to the Dharma and to understand it as best they could, to practice it, see for themselves if it was useful, if it really was beneficial, then to have the courage and the integrity to live that way, and if it wasn't, to temporarily put it aside, or not, not to dismiss it out of hand, but just to say, not for me at this time. Put it aside. Later, it may be time. And I think that's an appropriate way to approach any of the spiritual teachings or the teachings of the Buddha, is that it may not be suitable for you at every time or at any time in your life, but at some point in your life and practice, it may be beneficial. So even what we cannot yet open to or cannot yet understand, and certainly a lot that we cannot yet confirm, doesn't mean that it's of no use or of no value or wrong. It just means not for me at this time. So I would like to ask you to do the same thing with what I say today. If what I say today resonates with you in your practice, in your experience, and you think it's helpful or find it helpful, and good, try it. See, confirm it for yourself. Don't just don't just take my word for it. But on the other hand, if something I says kind of irks you, kind of 
going to say something different. But if it kind of doesn't uh, agree with you and you want to get kind of riled up about it, don't waste your time. Just let it go. Just let it go through like, not for me at this time. It may be right, it may be wrong, it may be useful, it may not. And that's really up to you. Uh, I'll, be, I'll be saying a lot, probably, and uh, not all of it will be suitable for you at this time. There you go. No, no, no. You don't have to kind of figure it out and jam yourself up trying to acquire information or knowledge which really isn't practical for you. That being said, the seven factors uh, of awakening are uh, indicative or they point to uh, the qualities present in a balanced mind. And I quite casually said that a balanced mind gives rise to healthy materiality. Well, think of it this way. You know, if if one is a very angry or very uh, anxious person in a kind of, kind of a chronic way, we know that being angry a lot of the time or being anxious a lot of the time, or being depressed a lot of the time, has very profound physical consequences. The state of mind deeply conditions how the body is, and especially if it's over a sustained period of time. Well, imagine, on the other end of the spectrum, if the mind is in a very balanced uh, energetic and tranquil, alert and accommodating and kind of at ease with the way things are and is very balanced in its relationship to the conditions of life as they unfold and that's sustained over a substantial period of time, that the body is going to be also responsive and deeply conditioned by that state of mind and physical uh, mental balance giving rise to the most healthful or healthy physical conditions uh, that kind of support being healthy in our body, being energetic, uh, not being uh, stressed or anxious or disease prone. When I talk about the balance of mind that the seven factors cultivates or generates. When we look at the seven factors on this little chart, we see that the first one is mindfulness. Mindfulness, we all know what mindfulness is, kind of. But the subsequent three are three energizing factors. Investigation, energy, and joy. And these are all qualities of mind that are very uplifting, very energizing, very um, engaging. And the final three, number five, six, and seven, are called the tranquilizing factors. And these are three qualities or three factors of mind, calm, concentration, and equanimity, that have a subduing effect on the mind. If either the energizing or the tranquilizing are out of balance, meaning one is excessive and the other is deficient, then 
we're going to end up with a very either over-anxious, overcharged, hyper-vigilant, hyperactive, anxiety-prone state of mind, or we end up with a lethargic, withdrawn, uh, maybe dull, sleepy, uh, soporific quality of mind, or lifestyle, you might say. And so we can see that if, in a general way, if, as you look at your own life, if you have a very high metabolism and are very prone to over-exuberant, energetic uh, engagement with the experiences of your life, then you can find, find that on this map. And if you have a very, I guess we'd say, low or slow metabolism, uh, physical and mental, uh, and a very not just calm, but you know, kind of on the, the downhill side of calm, then you can see that, oh, you can find that state of mind or that quality of lifestyle uh, on this map also. It's not to make one or the other right or wrong. It's just to look at your life in a moment or over the course of the decades and just to see and just to get a sense of how it is for you. And that's where mindfulness plays the significant part because mindfulness is the truth teller, if you will. Uh, when mindfulness is aroused, it sees the present moment. And the other qualities of mind that, that arise with mindfulness allow us to recognize it and to be in a uh, balanced relationship to it, not attached or averse or confused by it. And it is this honest connection and appraisal and acknowledgement of the present moment that will tell you without fail and without spin what your present moment's experience is. There's a quality of mind that arises with uh, awareness or, or mindfulness. It's called Ujjukata. I don't have it on this page, but it's another one of these factors of mind, one of the 52. And Ujjukata is uh, what's called straightness of mind. It's the mind's ability, with the, the aware mind's ability, to see things as they are without spin. Now, most of what we see in our life, we put a spin on. You know, it's like you watch the news, you watch some news event on the on TV, and they have the video there, and you see for yourself what's happening. Okay. But that's not enough. Soon after the video is over, the news commentators come on and tell you what you saw. They're putting their spin on it. They're putting their spin that this is good or bad and you know, this was useful or not useful, or this was right or wrong, or who's at fault. But actually, you saw the event for yourself. Why isn't that good enough? Well, mindfulness is the video, the camcorder of your mind, and the chatter of your mind is the spinner. And mindfulness cuts through the spin. Mindfulness cuts through the uh, adding additional value to what the mind actually sees. 
So mindfulness is, is really the, the uh, naked observer, if you will, or the naked observing, if you will. It's the ability of the mind to just register. This is the way it is. Like an impersonal camcorder. And in fact, if you look in your mind, or as you do your practice, you look in your mind, you'll see that yeah, you're, you're, the mind has been recording everything that you've seen, heard, felt, thought, believed, disbelieved, been afraid of, been excited by throughout your whole life. And while you may not remember it right now, if you keep looking, everything that you've ever experienced is still in there. It's still in the archives of the mind. So we say, you know, the mind is like a sponge, very, very porous. It soaks up everything, even if we don't see it. Nevertheless, the mind is still taking it in through the sense doors and registering it. So often when we uh, start uh, or, or practice mindfulness with some continuity and, and some clarity, we discover stuff going on in our mind that we never saw before, that we never noticed. Or we discover how we actually felt in dramatic or challenging situations in the past that we just kind of skipped over or that we've been hanging on to or that we've been resisting or we've been afraid of. And now when mindfulness gets some strength of mind and it sees things as they really are or with a memory sees things as they really were, no spin. The justification you used then, the rationalization that you used then to, to kind of allow you to do those sometimes unskillful, humiliating, shameful things the story is no longer there. The rationalization it no longer holds. And you see it as it really was, as it really is. This is the capacity of mindfulness. When we look at the mindfulness and the, the war, what would we call it? The proximate cause, the manifestation, the characteristic, and the function. It's what? It's an indication of how mindfulness arises how it shows itself to us, what's it like, and what's it do. And the interesting thing, oh, let me just back up. Remember what you did when I said, okay, we're going to sit and be mindful for a while. Pay attention to what you do as you enter into this period of being mindful. What do you do? Well, sometimes we sit a little straighter, sometimes we relax, sometimes we turn our attention to a particular object like the breath or hearing or something, or sometimes we give ourselves a little matter. We do all kinds of things. There's all kinds of things that we do to settle in and begin. But the one thing that all of that requires is that you remember to do it. If you don't remember to do it, you won't do it, no matter what technique you're using. And so, when we look at, at mindfulness, we see that its function is to not forget. And actually, that's all mindfulness does. It just doesn't forget. And what doesn't it forget? It doesn't forget this moment. It doesn't forget that this is it. In this moment, this is all there is. Just this. And it recognizes that this is life. This is the moment of life. And it flashes by in a, just a split second, 
and we have the opportunity in the next moment to either remember this is it or we forget and if we forget it's like we fall asleep because if we're not mindful of our experience we go into some kind of forgetful daydreamy zone space out thought constructed reality of something that's not really happening we're living in the past we're living in the fantasy we're living in the future but we're not living in the present moment in fact we don't know there's a present moment we have forgotten it and that's what mindfulness is mindfulness remembers this present moment there's other qualities of mind that recognize you know it's, it's sanya or perception which I put down in the bottom here in these lower four sanya and perception is what recognizes that's what it does it recognizes familiar experience that's not mindfulness it's, it's perception that recognizes oh this is familiar this is I, I've seen this I've felt this kind of experience before but it's mindfulness that remembers or doesn't forget this is it this is the moment not getting lost in past future and I say getting lost because we can be mindful of thinking about the past we can be mindful of planning the future we can be mindful of creating a fantasy but we're aware that that's what's happening in the present moment we're not lost in the past the future or the fantasy so I want to make that point to that um, non-forgetfulness the function this is what mindfulness does the other quality of mindfulness that I want to point out emphasize is its manifestation it's called its manifestation is called the guardianship it guards the mind it guards the mind it's like mindfulness is like the gatekeeper of the mind and you know even as we sit here there are sounds coming in through the ear door right if you're alive and your ears work you're hearing sounds you may not be aware of it that's okay but your mind is registering sounds are being heard it is the function of mindfulness to recognize all oh, sounds are being heard and not just to get irritated if you get irritated mindfulness isn't guarding the mind the sounds come in the ear door it's a little bit unpleasant it will give rise to irritation or frustration or somebody going out there and tell them go away don't don't, don't run that now we're having, we're having talking in here right or even the mind wants to do that if that's what's happening oh the awareness or mindfulness wasn't guarding the mind guarding the mind or guarding the mind from falling into uh, the developments some kind of reaction to what is actually going on but if we just sit here and say oh hearing's happening right hearing's happening or maybe the temperature is a little too cool for you or a little too warm for you and this is also being registered uh, by the mind in an ongoing continual or recurring way it's mindfulness that will uh, guard the mind from feeling irritated that it's too cool or feeling uh, indulgent that it's just right and you can fall asleep it's mindfulness that, that, that guards the mind in that way and it does it by actually confronting the object the object in this case is that sound 
is not a lawnmower, it's not a weed whacker, or whatever those things are. It's the sound. And it, you know, we, we might say, that's unpleasant sound. So it's mindfulness, awareness that confronts that object and just says, I see you. That's it. I see you. That's what the mindfulness says. Got it. Got it. Got it. Taking, taking notice of it. Just noticing that's what's going on. Not forgetting. And the other the characteristic of mindfulness is it's called not wobbling and not floating away. Of all the things that are going on right now in this room, there's the body feeling, the temperature, the mind's knowing that, there's the ears hearing sound, the mind is knowing that, there's thoughts in the mind trying to make sense of what this guy up front is saying, and aware that mindfulness is aware of that. And there's all kinds of other things going on in the body, in the environment, that the mind is taking notice of. I might think that the mind is just kind of globally just kind of taking in this whole package and just kind of holding it all. But actually, in each moment, it is piercing. It is going into that sound. If you really want to hear that sound, you just steady your attention. <laughs> Okay, let's take the temperature. That sounds not happening anymore. <laughs> so let's take the temperature. So if you turn your attention to the temperature that you feel in the room, the temperature in the body, how do you do that? You feel it. Feel it. It's like you steady your attention. You steady your attention on some area of the body where you feel this temperature. On your skin, on your arms, on your neck, wherever. And then you steady. And then the mind drops into it. It kind of drops into the feeling. It doesn't wobble away. It doesn't float away. It doesn't just get carried along by a stream of thought about the temperature. It actually goes into the mind. You actually let the mind sink into the experience. This is the... the, the uh, characteristic of mindfulness. It doesn't float away with the object. It actually pierces it, or we say it doesn't wobble. It goes into it. My teacher, Mandita, he says, mindfulness is like a fork. When you're trying to eat a plate of peas, you know, forks are not the best thing for eating peas, because you know, a spoon would be better. But that's not the way mindfulness works. Mindfulness works by going, Chook! And you have to have right aim. You have to have very precise aim. And if you try too hard, if you go like that, oh, the pee is just going to slip out of the way. But if you just go kind of like, you know, the, the pee will just kind of roll to the side, and, and you also don't pierce it. So you've got to have just the right, just the right aim, right? If you if you don't, if you aim at the side of the plate, you're not going to get the pee. Same with your awareness. If you're aiming at oh, just kind of some place nearby the present moment. You don't get it. But on the other hand, if you try too hard, you say, I'm going to get that sucker. <laughs> you break the plate. <laughs> well, you break your mind. You know, it's just like you get really tense. You know, and your, your, your mind gets fractured. It gets kind of scattered. It gets kind of shattered if you try too hard. So you have to try with just the right balance of, well, a precise aim and the right balance of effort. If you get over-efforting, it's like, Try too hard. We've all we've all done that. 
If you're too languid, you kind of don't like peas, you know, just kind of like, eh, not going to happen either. You're going to starve. So, so mindfulness is the ability to aim precisely and to turn your attention, your mindful, mindful attention to the object and actually pierce it. And you pierce it in order to actually taste it. If you don't, if you don't, you know, get the pea caught on the fork, you'll never taste the pea. Same with mindfulness. If you don't actually get the mindfulness into the object, you don't know the flavor of that object. You can't really identify it. You just kind of know its shape, its color, but you don't really get the taste. We know peas are green and round, but until you get it on the fork and get it in the mouth, no taste. Same with the mindfulness, awareness. We can see generally, in kind of a, a kind of a, a general way, or we can be mindful of the temperature of the room. But if you really want to taste the temperature of the room with your mind, well, you have to sink into it. You have to set your mind into it like a fork into a pea. When we do that, then the, we say that the mind is actually confronting the object. You know, the mind is the, the mindfulness is the guardian of the mind. It keeps out the defilements. It looks at everything that's coming into the mind and says, you can come in, you can come in, you can come in. You can't come in. I don't want the defilements in there. So we, we listen to the sound, we say the sound can come in. Yes. The irritation, no, you can't come in. The temperature can come in, but the dislike of the temperature, no, 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 you can't come in. Mindfulness says that. Because mindfulness cannot coexist with any of the defilements, or I should say, none of the defilements can coexist with mindfulness. Now, wait a minute. Haven't you heard Mark say, <laughs> you know, when you, when you feel irritated or, 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 you know, upset, be mindful of it. you say that? Yeah, I do too. <laughs> but the difference is, in the moment that you're upset, you're not being mindful. But when you turn your attention to it, your mindful attention to it, you can be mindful of that. You can be mindful of the feeling of irritation or the, 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 the urge in the mind to be upset or excited or fearful or whatever, whatever the defilement happens to be. But at that point, you're no longer indulging in it. There's an awareness of it. And while I'm on that topic, there's a huge difference between being anxious, thinking about your anxiety, and being aware of anxiety. Huge difference. Because when we're anxious, we're, it's really unpleasant, it's really uncomfortable. We feel like crap. You know, it's just like, you know how it is. Don't you? Yeah, we do. But when we think about it, we try to solve, and we try to fix it, we try to figure it out. You know, we're thinking about, why am I so anxious? Well, it's because... We also still don't feel very good. Because no matter what we think about it, we're still anxious. But being mindful of anxiety, there's a... Now, this is a, this is a three-dimensional uh, three instruction, so you have to watch me now. So there's anxiety. When we're anxious, it's like this. Awareness is wrapped up in the anxiety. So there's, we feel anxious. When we're thinking about anxiety, it's kind of like, we're kind of going like this. We're kind of like getting the texture. We're kind of 
getting the outlines of the anxiety, but we're not clear about it yet. Being aware of anxiety is like this. Anxiety is here. It just lands in the mind. Oh, but the mind is not absorbed in or lost in the anxiety or any of the other defilements. There's the anxiety and awareness of it. So what we're trying to do with this practice is to have the clarity of awareness to take it out of the unwholesome defilements. So that we there's this clear seeing. Now, some people say, yeah, but that's like cutting it off or separating yourself from your experience or getting some distance or being too objective. But actually, if there's anxiety there or any other defilement, you feel it. You feel it. You feel it mentally and it conditions feelings or sensations in the body, which can also be tracked. The sensations in the body are not the mental state, but strong mental states can condition and do condition sensations arising in the body. So when we are aware of a mental state, it's, it's as if we extract the awareness, the mindfulness, from the mental state, and we turn and look at it, like that, or like that, so that there's a both a subjective feeling of it, but an objective knowing of it. This is called mindfulness. This is the, the proximate cause for mindfulness, is having a clear perception. Clear perception is the ability to, to distinguish what the unique taste of this experience is, whether it's a pea or a potato. So you taste this mental state. Now I've been talking for half hour probably. What's your mental state? Just take a look. What's your mental state? Boredom? Curiosity? Excitement? Sleepiness? Disinterest? I don't give a hootness? What's your mental state? <coughs> only you know. Only you can know. And the only way you can know is to, well, kind of come out of it. Turn around, take a look. What, what, what is this? Remembering this present moment, because that's what's going on in this moment, is that mental state. Now, the next thing is, if you if you are feeling bored, and you don't become aware of it, then you'll suffer. You, you really won't want me to keep talking. You'll just say, shut up. Because, <laughs> you know, this is boring. Let's get on to something more exciting. Right? But if you can, just be aware of boredom. Well, then, then that's kind of fascinating. What do you know about boredom? We've been bored before. We've been sleepy before. We've been excited. We've been depressed. We've been anxious. We've been fretful, fearful. Awareness is the practice of learning about these states of mind and really being able to taste the difference between fear and anxiety, the difference between depression and despair, the difference between excitement and indulgence, or the difference between uh, awareness and what we call more or less awareness. Because each one of those mental states has its own flavor. 
And that flavor is called, uh, is only knowable by having a clear perception. And clear perception, if you look down in the bottom here, perception is, uh, well, it, it, it perceives the quality of an object. It actually tastes, it is what tastes and recognizes the quality. Whether, for example, whether you feel warm or cool. It is perception that will tell you what the temperature is and will give you that accurate uh, appraisal. Same with the qualities of the mind. If your perception is strong, you'll be able to notice and distinguish this mental state from others. Uh, for example, uh, you'll be able to distinguish, for example, depression from despair. Now, they're pretty close. They're pretty close. But there's subtle differences. <coughs> if you know the nature of depression and you know the nature of despair, you'll know the difference and you'll know the similarities. So this is what uh, clear perception uh, recognizes. It recognizes the uniqueness of this particular moment. How are we doing? You with me? Okay. We're just talking about mindfulness now. We're going to get over this because everybody knows about mindfulness, right? Okay. And I want to get into the uh, to the three energizing qualities because this is what's required to kind of emerge, to initially emerge from our, well, our deeply conditioned sleep. You know, when we grow up, in our family, in our culture, when we go to school, we get conditioned into seeing things, believing things, experiencing things in the way we're taught. We can't just see things as they are and know them for ourselves. We have to learn from our parents. Is this good or is this bad? We learn from our culture. Is this good or is this bad? Should I do this or not? And if we don't get that kind of guidance, instruction, we don't differentiate anything. And it's very difficult to live in the world uh, in a consensual reality if you're not able to differentiate and, and have a kind of a similar understanding as the other people around you. That's why you go to a foreign country. You can see what people are doing, but you don't really understand it. It's like, I wonder why they're doing that. We had this experience in Burma a lot. We go into you know, some village and we're trying to figure out how many kids they got and whether they need a new school or something. And they're talking in Burmese, and I don't understand Burmese. And they're screaming and arguing and hollering and having a heck of a time. And I think, oh, geez, I only asked them how many kids go to school. And, like, <laughs> you know. and you know, after five minutes, ten minutes, you know, they still haven't told us what's going on. So I asked the administrator, what's going on? And they're having a discussion about something that we don't care about. He said, oh, well, we can't tell you that because if you know that some of the girls aren't going to school and da, 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 maybe you won't go to school. We'll, we'll go to school, but we want the girls to go to school too. And they said, well, you know, if you ask to put your name on that school building, like this school was donated by Steve Armstrong, the government doesn't like that. So we have to find a way to tell you, yes, we'd like a school. Yes, we'll get the girls to go, but you can't put your name on the school. We didn't ask them if we wanted a name on the school. <laughs> but that's what, they, that's what they heard. They thought, if we donate, then we want our name on the school. We don't want that. 
It's just their cultural interpretation, a mis mistaken view of what, because uh, if a Burmese person goes to donate a school, they want their name on it. It's like, oh, okay, well, we're running into this all the time with each other. Different people having different beliefs. Uh, my host, hostess, yesterday from the East Coast, said, said that uh, we were pulling into a, we were pulling into a Kinko's uh, parking lot, and somebody cut us off. Took the only remaining parking spot, and I said, <laughs> she said, oh, you're from the East Coast, I can tell. People, <laughs> people in Minnesota don't do that. They say something. They say something else. And, uh, yeah, it's like, it's true. You know, I mean, I don't know what you guys would say, but, you know, our cultural history goes with us wherever we go. Where's that old though? Can't remember. So when we look at the, um, the three energizing factors of mind, these are the qualities of mind that really wake us up from our slumber, wake us up from just kind of droning on through life in our, in our deeply conditioned and habitual ways that we've learned from our, our parents. And, and, you know, it's comfortable. You know, I mean, it's kind of comfortable to just be asleep to life and just do what you've been taught and just kind of see things the same way your parents see them and, and just kind of go through. But there's just enough discomfort in life to, to, to kind of try to wake you up. So when we intentionally take our practice and we take up awareness, we, we need to generate usually a lot of uh, energy to be able to sustain the interest and the energy for looking through the lens of our condition to see things the way they really are. These are the... Uh, investigation, energy, and joy are the three qualities of mind that are very enlivening, very enlivening of the mind and therefore awakening and enlivening of the body also. But actually we say that investigation, mindfulness, investigation, and energy are the only three of the seven factors that you can do anything about. Those are the ones that you can intentionally cultivate. You can cultivate mindfulness, you can cultivate uh, investigation, you can cultivate energy. But joy, calm, concentration, and equanimity, they are the result of the development of the other three. We'll get into this a little later as we talk about it. But I just want to give an overview of the uh, three energizing qualities. Investigation is really not by thinking. It's not investigating by reading more books or doing some research. It's the investigation uh, with awareness. You know, as I said, if you want to really know what the temperature of the room is, you have to investigate it. Not by looking at the thermostat, but by feeling it in the body and, and knowing for yourself through the, your direct experience of the, the temperature of the body what, what, what this is. This is what this investigation is pointing to is how to know the present moment's experience as it really is. Not what you think about it, not what you've been told, not what the thermostat says, but how you experience it. Energy, and I want to uh, uh, mention what I did last night. There's, there's a lot 
of different kinds of energy, uh, mental and physical, and the different energy required in a practice. There's the, uh, as I was telling somebody yesterday, there's the energy of initiating, uh, starting something up. And it's often very exciting to start something, to start uh, a relationship, or to start school, or to start a job, or to start meditation practice. And even when we start a single sitting, oh, we kind of, we, we gear up some energy and we kind of hold ourselves up and, and remember what we're doing and, and start. That's one kind of energy. But, you know, midway through the sitting, you get this kind of <laughs> cruising energy. <laughs> it's kind of like, not startup energy more. It's kind of like cruising energy. It's like when you're halfway through the book, you know, it's like, okay, it's not quite as exciting as I thought. It's a little more work than I thought. But we're just kind of cruising. It takes a different kind of energy to sustain the energy, huh? to sustain the momentum. Startup energy would be too much. That would take you to another book, <laughs> take you to another state of mind. But to just support the momentum of what's already going on. And then there's the um, the energy uh, to finish. You know, the energy it takes to finish a project is not startup energy. It's not problem-solving energy. It's not even sustain the momentum energy. It's different. You know, how do you end a sitting? How do you end a retreat? How do you end a book? You're reading a book or writing a book? How do you do that? What kind of energy does it take? It takes a very enduring, a very enduring energy. If you get too excited, it takes you off. If you don't sustain it, it stops short. It takes the energy of just sustaining in a very gentle but precise way. You know, kind of bringing the end of the project, bringing the end of the sitting, bringing the end of your life into view and wrapping it up. It takes very different energy. I often say to people, you know, when you're on retreat, you know, you've been, you've been in retreat for six or seven days, eight days, and the retreat is going to end in another day. I say, watch carefully. Because how you end a retreat, or even how you end this day's workshop is indicative of how you'll end your life. What? What's he talking about? It's like, who said? Well, it is. You know, can you can you really hold your attention on something until it comes to its natural end? Or do you just space out? Do you just lose it? Do you not know when things end? This is an important, important question to ask yourself in your practice, really. When you sit down to practice, we always have some intention at the beginning of the sitting. Where's your intention at the end of the sitting? Is it already into the next activity? You'll be reborn many times before you learn to let go of that one. Or is it right there, willing to just see this come to an end? nothing to do. Imagine. Imagine if you finished everything on your to-do list. Imagine. You just wrap it up. You got that kind of finish it up energy. You wrap it all up. The last project and the last thing and you wrapped it all up 
What would that feel like? Would it be exciting? Would it be quiet? Would you scramble around to get something else? Would you have a sense of relief? Would you feel bored? Would you feel empty? Would you feel fulfilled? Again, it's only by paying careful attention to each moment that we're going to know what happens when we bring a sitting to an end, or the day's workshop to an end, or our life to an end. And this is an important kind of energy to uh, begin to recognize or begin to work with in practice so that we uh, cultivate the sustaining energy, energy that really sustains and not collapses. Last night I was talking about... Well, how many were here last night? Okay, how many weren't here? Oh, 50-50. Okay, so last night I was talking about... Now, this is another uh, uh, visual instruction. Last night I was talking about the energy like this. You know, you're sitting, you're sitting, you're sitting, you're doing something, and then at some point you go... Do you see that? You're going along, you're going along, going along, being present, being present, and then you go... That's when your energy collapses. But energy has the manifestation of non-collapsing. If there is energy, the mind doesn't collapse. That's when the mind collapses. It goes, you know, and when the mind collapses, the body, the body collapses. Because the mind is no longer there to support it. The mind's gone somewhere. And so the body is, not, is left mindless. No mind in the body. So we want to learn to recognize when this kind of energy, or the, the, to be able to distinguish, I should say, the very subtle energy of wrapping things up, the very just sustaining energy, and the collapse of energy. Because once you collapse, then there's no more awareness, and we're lost. I've been talking too long, or a long time. Now, I've talked about mindfulness and some of the energizing qualities, and you've all practiced a lot. I know you've all been doing practice. Or you're engaged in your life. I want to ask a question like this. How do you experience over-energized mind in your practice of life or under-energized mind? your practice for life? That's the question. Do you have energy in your life? Do you feel energetic in your life? Do you feel lethargic in your life? In your practice? When you sit down, are you more kind of like on top of things or kind of underneath things? The primary way I experience a pivotal energy is through wandering mind and on the cushion. Wandering mind as an experience of too little energy. Yeah, the trick is applying the right type of energy without overdoing it. I'm still learning how to do that. Now, uh, what's your name? Mark. 
Mark. Now, I have this kind of habit of taking everything anybody says as an opportunity to teach something. So don't take it personal, okay? So I kind of have to ask for your permission to kind of use you as an example. You know, when I notice restlessness in my mind, I never feel like I have too little energy. It always feels like too much energy. So I'm surprised, you know, restlessness is like, wow, the mind is just going, doo, 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 doo. So it's like, holy like that. You know, thinking about this, thinking about that, jumping from here, jumping from there, just kind of racing. and. So I wouldn't think that restlessness is an experience of too little energy. What do you think? I think there are two types of wandering mind. The one I was thinking of, just like you described, the one I'm thinking of is more of a dullness, just a drifting because I can't get enough a good, healthy sense of urgency to stay with the present. You use sense of urgency. Where does that say now? This simple sense of urgency. Approximate cause of energy. Oh, yeah. Sense of urgency. How come? I'm asking you. Well, you know what we say about a sense of urgency is this Samvega. Samvega is uh, spiritual urgency. It uh, rests on the uh, unawareness. This is kind of harsh, but uh, it rests on the lack of awareness that you're going to die. And you don't know when. And it could be right in the next moment. Because if you know and the Buddha was very instructive. He said, every day you should reflect on death. Not just death general, but death, your death. But we each should reflect on our own death every day. Why? Because it's a fact, right? We're going to die. And there isn't anybody in the room that knows when or how. And so not knowing when and not knowing how, but knowing that we're going to, it could be any time. Does that make you want to go, okay, let me just kind of pay attention. I want to be here for it if it's going to happen, right? So if you're feeling collapsed, not much energy, just kind of drifting in this dull state, what can you do about that? Somebody else had a hand up here. You. I, just, I, I experience a lot of... You, can you tell me a name? Sorry. Oh, yeah, Jana. Jana, right. Jana. I experience similar kind of drifting a lot mm. in my... That seems like it's from a lack of energy. And I think it's um, sort of not being interested or thinking that what I'm doing is important. That it's sort of like that's the next cause of why I'm, I'm sort of just a little collapsed. It doesn't seem... Like I'm a little confused. Now I understand what you're what you're both talking about. You're talking about the mind just floating away. Right? It's just floating away. It's just like the mindfulness is not here in the moment. It just kind of floats away. Well, that's what that's what mindfulness is, not floating away. <laughs> Actually, we say not fading away. 
but that's a grateful gesture. <laughs> so, so don't fade it, not fade away, you know, not fade away. <laughs> so, so what, do, what can you do to, to actually strengthen mindfulness? On the map now, this, this little map is going to tell you, if you're floating away, and you both had this experience of floating away, you look and say, oh, not floating away, I need some more mindfulness. What's the cause for mindfulness? Oh, strong perception. Right? What would strong perception be in that kind of experience? The awareness that your mind is There you go. What's actually happening in the present moment? Mindfulness only knows what's happening in the present moment. What's happening in the present moment is floating away. If you can have a clear perception, oh, the mind's floating away, what happens? No, wait, I, I, you got to... Huh? You're mindful. And? What? And it's not floating away? Now, wait a minute. <laughs> Just because you're mindful of something, does that mean it stops? No. Sometimes you can be mindful of something and it just keeps going on and on and on. Like what? A pain. Well, let's look at that. Okay, so now you have a pain. You know, uh, where? Uh, knee. knee. Okay, so you got a pain in the knee. First, we think I got a pain in my knee, right? And the mind, you know, it's a very strong sensation, and the mindfulness goes right there, right? And then mindfulness notices what? It changes. It changes from piercing to aching. From pain to piercing to aching to vibrating. Vibrating. See, every one of them is going away, right? Is it, does it go away, does the pain go away because of awareness? Does the aching go away because of awareness? Does the stabbing go away because of awareness? No, no, why? Why does the pain go away? Why does the aching go away? Why does the stabbing go away? So it's its nature change. So whether you're mindful of it or not, it's going to go away. Why should we get upset about anything? It's going to go away anyway. <laughs> right? Right? You're thankful for pain because it keeps you from being sloth, not torpid, torpid. I think I would just strengthen perception. Forget the pain part. <laughs> just strengthen your perception. You strengthen your perception, it really get clear, get a clear recognition of what's going on. Then you know, Clear perception is the direct antidote to uh, torpor. 
It is. Because torpor is, you know, heaviness of mind, inactivity of mind, unwillingness to register what's going on. Perception is recognizing what's going on. Right? So we've talked about restlessness. Torpor, we talked about pain, we talked about the nature of everything is to change. What, what have we left out? <laughs> you, you asked about the overactive mind also. Ah, overactive mind. Does, uh, hey, let's do a survey. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the reminder. You know, if, if you had to classify yourself kind of generally as the high metabolism active or to the point of sometimes overactive type or kind of the sluggish, uh, low energy, slow metabolism, uh, maybe more uh, tranquil type. Okay? That's your that's the spectrum. How many are on the overactive, high intense, you know, kind of like wound up side? What's that, about fifty percent? <laughs> How many are on the uh, sluggish, low wow bipolar <laughs> in the in the spiritual sense <laughs> psychopharmacological sense <laughs> now I have a question which do you prefer the high metabolism you like that high energy kind of like really alert on top of things really bent that or do you prefer the kind of low sluggish kind of tranquil soporific now wait a minute some people aren't voting here <laughs> Which is? Now wait a minute. You can be mindful if you're really high energy and kind of wound up and just kind of like on top of things. And you can be mindful of very kind of calm, tranquil, content, easeful. Right? Can do. Well, the content and easeful is very different. Say it again. In my experience, I, I like. I like excitement a lot, but I also like intense and peaceful. The torpor is very about you know kind of restlessness and high energy in life or in the mind <laughs> I, I can't yeah it's like I don't know how to live life without my mind
Anybody got any uh, kind of a uh, analytical understanding of what she's talking about? So that when you're on one end of the spectrum, that's okay. You're just not oblivious of the other end of the spectrum. Is that what you mean? certainly is a draining, you know, when we get obsessive obsessive, and we're not really resolving anything, can be very draining. I think she's talking about something a little bit different, but that's, that's a good point, yeah? One other thought is um, it could be possible to be very active without a lot of mindfulness. We talked about all that conditioning. Yeah. I, 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 I tended to think all the activity busyness, the excitement of your life, of your life, is kind of in the movement of the mind and the body, but not really awareness of the body and the mind. Because if if at the end of you know that activity you're tired, you're exhausted, and you just collapse, then there hasn't been awareness there. What if you're not? Pardon? What if you're not? Sit, sit down with your eyes closed. Yeah, you're tired. I think that, uh, well, uh, I think it's kind of a, a kind of a national malaise is to not recognize when we're tired. You know, I don't think I don't think you're alone. I think it's quite quite prevalent because we're so used to being stimulated and we're so unused to being calm and just present in a wakeful way with calmness that we don't realize what, what tiredness is. I wonder if you could say a little more about mouth. Rest. Last night you were talking about you were at Monterey, how you were meant to be really wakeful for 20 hours. And how, how can it be restful to be awake and energetic um, in this way? Yeah. Um, so the question is about how can it be restful to be awake for 20 hours a day, right? Well, we're going to get into the tranquilizing factors of mind more this afternoon, and uh, we'll talk about that. I just wonder if you 
wonder, um, I'm seeing it sort of hearing like it seems like there's like too much activity makes it it's not there's a point where it's not possible to be mindful of about a certain point. There's so much going on that it, it's almost like an assembly line, like you know, some of the flawed foods just go by and you can only get so many off of the, the roller before it, and so maybe maybe mindfulness gives the information that you have to slow down the production line in order to pay attention to every fruit of your moment. Otherwise, it, it's just not possible. That sounds very convincing. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to give you another example. In August, when the night sky is full of Pleiades, you know, the, the, not the Pleiades, the, uh, you know, all the uh, shooting stars. If you want to see the shooting stars in the, in the sky, how do you do that? Well, you go to a nice dark place and you, you open your eyes and you don't focus on anything. And yet, you see everything. If there's a, you know, you've got the whole sky in your, in your vision. No matter where the shooting star goes, you see it. But you're not looking at that particular spot. So you have very panoramic awareness. Why couldn't you be very panoramically aware of everything that's going on, even if you're busy and if you're doing a lot? Why couldn't there be awareness of a lot? Who's to say that you have to see things one at a time? And how many, how many ones are there at a time? I just wanted to challenge that, you know, I could see every little thing. I don't, I don't think so. Because, let me just say that, in practice, we often think that we've got to slow down. We've got to slow down our mind, we've got to slow down our body in order to be aware of... Right? And I've taught this for years, so if you believe it, well, I understand why. But actually, in the beginning, maybe that's necessary, just so we feel stable, so we feel confident that we're seeing things. But there's plenty of times in practice when mindfulness is really sharp and alert and panoramic, and things are going by like crazy, and no problem, not being strung out by it, not being uh, exhausted by it. So it's kind of like, you know, if you stand, if there's a train going by, and you're standing just three feet away from the train, oh my God, it's too intense. You can't kind of register all that's happening, right? But if you just step back a little further, and this is what Vipassana does. Vipassana steps back to see things. And you just step back, you know, ten yards. Train's going by at the same speed, and yet not nearly so overwhelming, and you can keep up with it. You can count the cars going by. It's going by at the same speed, but the, the you, in this case, have a different perception of it because of the distance from it. The pasana does that. The pasana steps back from things. Samadhi, or concentration, goes into things. So when you step back, you see things from a different perspective. You have a different perception of them, really to use this different perception. And you can take in a lot more in a shorter amount of time.
Can we have panoramic mindfulness in everyday activity of life? That's the question. Uh-huh. What do you think? Yeah. We better have, yeah. really. Because, you know, in a couple of minutes, we're going to take a short break. And there's going to be 90 people. We're going to get up, and we're all going to go out two doors, and we're going to head for four bathrooms. <laughs> right? And somehow, we're not going to get into a fight. And we're not going to bump into each other. We're going to be panoramically aware of just the way it goes, the flow, the dynamic. We're going to be aware of everything that's going on. So when we do take a break, watch, watch, you know, how panoramic your attention is. What it notices. Just notice what it notices visually. Notice what it notices sound-wise, too. Because we don't have to, we don't have to narrow our focus practice. Mindfulness, if you look here for mindfulness, it doesn't say anything about narrow your focus <laughs> to be mindful. It's got nothing, mindfulness has nothing to do with narrowing the focus to a single object or to a small area or to a single thing. It just says not forgetting, not floating away, guarding the mind, strong perception. Okay. Can we do that in everyday pace? with kind of a panoramic awareness. We're going to have an opportunity to practice in a minute. Uh, and then I'm also going to address this now, but I was interested to hear more about asana stepping back and samadhi. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so there's a question about the vipassana stepping back and the samadhi going in. Mm-hmm. This afternoon we're going to be talking about samadhi or concentration. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that one what that kind of movement of mind is, and remind me then to distinguish more clearly about the Vipassana setting back in mindfulness samadhi going in. I'm going to go him and then you. Uh, question of panoramic mindfulness work on peas. Can panoramic mindfulness work on peas? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's eating with a spoon. No. No. Yeah. Um, Yes. Uh, yes. Now let me think. We can only take these metaphors of these images so far. You know, it's like okay. You know, when you have a fork that has just one tine on it, nobody ever has a fork that's one tine on it. That's called a spoon. But you know, and you have a fork that has four tines on it. Maybe you can get three peas at once. But rather than think of it that way, if you're if you're very precise and you have a very sharp fork and you're very quick, you can go two, 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 and you can get two, three, four, five in a in a in a row, so to speak. So it's more like that. Sometimes it feels like you're getting three at once. Sometimes it feels like you're getting three sequentially, very quickly. 
Uh, the question is about uh, how many peas can you pick up with a fork? <laughs> <laughs> Who asked the question? No, because he was saying, can you can panoramic awareness work with multiple objects? It's like it's like how many peas can you you get on a fork? Oh, peas, peas, peas. No, we're back at the peas and pears. Okay, you had a comment. The same. Oh, same question. That's an interesting phenomenon. Yeah. Well, I have two things now. Uh, I wanted to go back, first of all, to Davy's question about sleep and rest. And I know you're going to address this later, so I want to throw this out so you can possibly address it later. Or but I remember reading, I mean, the last few years, of some young American Westerner who went, I thought he was in Thailand, to study. And practicing there. And got an opportunity to go to a retreat in Korea. He got that opportunity because somebody gave him a good recommendation. So he got there to do this retreat and was told we're going to go 24-7. You know, 24 hours a day for seven days. You're going to be meditating. No sleep. And he's not going to do this. But he didn't want that. Sleep while sitting up and appearing. <laughs> I gotta tell you, this is something. This is something teachers learn really quick. How to get, how to get a little nap while. That's where we come to understand the uh, the kind of the not delusion, but the deficiency of our ordinary perceptions of things, and we begin to kind of. 
question them, or we begin to just uh, not take them as so solid. Our perceptions are conditioned by uh, you know, past and conditioned by the degree of uh, awareness in the mind. And if you strengthen the awareness, then you become more concentrated, or, or the mind becomes more collected. Uh, you will have be looking at the same thing and have very different perception of it. Yeah. It doesn't mean that the original perception was wrong. It doesn't mean that this is more right. It just gives you a different understanding of the nature of reality. And that, that's useful, to loosen the grip of conditioned understanding of reality. Yeah. Drugs do it very well, but they're just not sustainable. Yeah. So, uh, let's take a break. It's a little after 11. But just, this is a stand up, take a pee, get a tea, get a sip of water, and back in eight minutes, five to eight minutes. Did I give you a homework assignment during the break? <laughs> <laughs> I did. Just kind of around the computer. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, what did you notice? <laughs> it was noisy. It was a lot going on. I forgot. You forgot to do that? Partly true. This is, this is the problem. <laughs> we forget. We forget. We forget. Yeah. Uh, We've got about an hour before we'll break for lunch. And I wanted to mention the other... I want to, go, I want to spend some time with the three energizing factors because they are... Um, I think they are what we have to work with the most in the beginning of our practice uh, is to really uh, generate the right kind of energy, the right kind of interest or joy and the right kind of um, investigation or understanding. So I want to look at these a little bit. Uh, I mentioned uh, energy, you know, the kind, the different kinds of energy, the arousing energy, the sustaining energy, the kind of the supporting the momentum of energy, and the uh, energy being the uh, non-collapse of the mind, really that when we're talking about energy, we're not primarily talking about physical energy of doing a lot or really uh, tiring ourselves out physically, but really supporting the mind to be uh, in touch with uh, the present moment or supporting the mind to not fade away from the present moment, to be uh, willing to confront uh, the present moment. And, as I mentioned earlier, that the energy, the traditional, uh, maybe even the fundamentalist uh, cause for the arousing of that kind of energy is uh, a sense of urgency. And there are many different, they say there are eight uh, causes or eight factors, eight reflections for arousing Sambhaga, for spiritual urgency, for the, the urgency to be willing to, to, to be here, to recognize the aliveness of the present moment, one of them being death and 
all the others. I want to talk about joy a little bit. Uh, I know that one of the teachers on the West Coast, uh, James Braz, has a course now. I'm not selling it, but uh, called Awakening Joy, in which he has a lot of uh, affirmation, really, for you know just just consciously bringing joy into your life and and practice and uh, the value of that, because or the 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 need for that because of so much uh, conditioning in the other direction, kind of the unjoy, unjoy part of life or the, the burdensomeness part of life, which sometimes you get pretty heavy in dharma, dharma circles too. But the joy that we're talking about here in these uh, seven factors of awakening is not primarily the joy that you can arouse intentionally. It's not primarily the thinking about something that makes you happy and joyful. That's not the joy that we're talking about here. The joy that we're talking about here is the kind of experience in the mind or mental experience that occurs when the hindrances are put aside for a sustained period of time. And the hindrances are put aside for a sustained period of time when mindfulness is fairly continuous. The more continuous mindfulness is, the longer the hindrances don't get a chance to take over the mind. And um, what happens is that through the continuity of awareness, just moment to moment, being with whatever has <coughs> called your attention, whether it's the chosen object like the breath or posture, or whether it's random predominant objects like sight, sound, sensation, <coughs> thoughts, mood, feelings, or whether it's just a choiceless panoramic uh, awareness of anything and everything. When the mind can do its work of knowing unhindered, it takes great delight. When the mind can do its work of knowing unhindered, meaning <clears throat> without any of the defilements, which are all about, I mean, all the defilements are about, are putting the spin of me on impersonal experience. All the defilements are about me. They're all about <clears throat> my wants, my needs, my fears, my joys, my sorrows, my depression, my misunderstanding, my, my, me, me, me. And so when those can be put aside or seen through or not absorbed in for a period of time, then the mind does its thing. Now the mind has just a, an endless capacity for energy. The mind is an endlessly energetic thing, activity. And even when we go to sleep, when we fall asleep in the traditional understanding of the word, you know, go to bed, lay down, pass out, unaware, the mind is still going. The mind is still working. We're churning out all kinds of dreams and perceptions, and the mind is registering all, all that's going on in the room. 
even while we, would say, are unaware of it. When we uh, practice awareness intensively and really strengthen the non-forgetting and strengthen the clarity of perception, then just because we lay down and go to sleep doesn't mean that mindfulness, non-forgetting, and perception, clarity of recognition, goes to sleep. They don't. Mindfulness stays, if it's developed during the day, while you're normally awake, it is just as developed in the evening when you fall asleep. So many people report when they're practicing mindfulness intensely or intensively that their dreams are much more vivid. And their dreams aren't much more vivid. Their mindfulness is much more clear and their perception is much more distinguished. And so not forgetting means remembering, right? So when we dream and when we've been practicing uh, awareness intensively during the day and we dream, we're not so likely to forget. We're likely to remember and it's likely to be more vivid. <clears throat> but when the mind can do its work of knowing present moment experience without the defilements, then it... Yeah. To say the mind takes the light is, is kind of funny because the mind is... It's not, a, it's not a personality, so to speak. But it does. Uh, there's, a, there's a word that they use in talking about food. You know, when you have the five tastes in perfect balance in, a, in, some, in some concoction or some uh, food substance. When the five tastes are in perfect balance, you get an effect called amplitude, where... The taste is more than the sum of the five flavors. It's the five flavors on steroids, like that. (laughs) Well, the same thing happens when the mind, when the factors of mind, of mindfulness, you know, connecting, sustaining, and attention, and uh, mindfulness, and faith, and all of those factors of mind that arise with awareness, when they reach uh, some level of development, without hindrances, uh, for a sustained period of time, then the mind uh, kind of leaps to a kind of amplitude. Things get (coughs) steroidal. Is that a word? (laughs) It's like the mind on steroids. And so then the mind, quite naturally, we experience it as taking delight. And you can see that it says here that the function of joy is to refresh the body and the mind or to refresh the mind, and when the mind's refreshed, it refreshes the body. Uh, There's a gradient, there's a spectrum of joyful experiences in meditation practice. Everything from the, which is hard to understand is joy, but you know, sometimes you're sitting and you get this, um, this feeling of like sudden elevator drop, like that. Did you ever have that when you're meditating? You're meditating, you're going along, you get that bottom fallout. Actually, that's a, an initial indicator that the mind is really developing that momentum and, and beginning to access uh, the joy that comes from the development of the mind. It's not because you're thinking about it. It's not because you're thinking of something pleasant and taking joy in it. It's because the functioning, uh, the, the perceptual activity of the mind is, is 
unhindered and is reaching this kind of amplitude uh, effect. <clears throat> and then joy, uh, this factor of mind uh, that refreshes the mind and body can develop up to and including uh, ecstatic ecstasy that is uh, pass out intensity, pass out by the intensity of the ecstasy. And this is also quite joyful. And it, and it has the effect of uh, uh, refreshing the mind because it kind of burns everything else out of the mind. It's so intense. And then when the mind is that kind of like refreshed, the body feels very light, very uh, energetic, very pliable, transparent, uh, more like uh, helium. You know, you feel like you've been filled with helium and you just kind of like lift it off. Huh. Are you familiar with I don't know what the flow is. Like being in the zone. You know, is that kind of like colloquially like being in the zone? Yeah. Um, maybe some similarity, but I, I don't know enough about the characteristics of flow to say exactly. But this is very joyful. This is ecstatic. And you can't, it's unsuppressibly, unsuppressible uh, kind of happiness comes into the mind. But it actually can be quite intense. Kind of be, it's kind of like, you're all old enough to have this kind of experience. It's kind of like, <laughs> it's like orgasm for like hours at a time. You know, unabated uh, orgasm for full body, every cell of your body orgasming for sometimes hours. And it's not depleting or draining, energizing. Pretty good. Yeah. So, Joy arises through conditions, causes and conditions, which are impersonal. Continuity of awareness, clarity of perception, you know, sustained energy, etc., the other factors of mind. Also needs someone gives time with it, No, 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 you don't need to be... No, no, no. No, you don't need... No, no, definitely not. It's not you are joyful. As soon as you get in there, I'm joyful, then you've attached to it. Defilements have entered the mind, and it will soon undermine and contaminate that experience, and the joy will disappear. So two different joys. One is I'm joyful, or one is like... The I'm joyful is a very very superficial, frankly. Very superficial. Okay, so I, you asked a good question. 
Who's experiencing this? Who's, who's joyful? If you look down below number seven, you get to feeling Vedana, and the characteristic of Vedana is being felt. That means Vedana feels the pleasantness. You know, it's, it's not a person. It's a, it's a capacity of mind. It's an activity of mind feeling. Right? And when joy is that strong, Vedana is feeling pleasant, pleasantness. But to, to identify yourself with feeling is very common. I mean, we do. You know, if the body feels pleasant, we say, I feel pleasant. When the mind is happy, we say, I'm happy. But it's, that's a kind of a misnomer. It's really feeling is feeling pleasantness on the body. Feeling is feeling pleasantness of the mind. Yeah, I think what happens with me is that my feeling is about really you know just almost impossibly to impossible to prevent being a, becoming identified with our experience you know so when joy is there we feel we get very identified with it or when irritation is there we get very identified with it when fear is there we get very identified with it that is you know the preeminent um, wrong view that the Buddha pointed to over and over again that said this this wrong understanding has most misled humankind from the get-go and it has caused the suffering. What's important in coming to right view, which is not being identified with those experiences, when Sariputra, the Buddha's right hand and second only to the Buddha in wisdom, was asked what is the cause or what conditions give rise to right view okay because this is what we want we want right view in relation to joy and fear and all those other things with right view of course we're not identified with and he said there are two conditions for the arising of right view okay do you know what they are there are two conditions necessary for the arising of right view. Okay, mindfulness, concentration, non-attachment. I see some people agreeing with that. Anything else? Say it again. Non-judging. Okay. Wisdom. Wisdom is right. Right view is wisdom. What's the cause? What's the conditions for the arising of that? two things all of what you said are close to one of them which is wise attention okay so wise attention down there is that's on the bottom attention it's uh, that the confronting with the object really paying attention huh? paying attention with wisdom but the second thing which is actually the first in the sorry who does this is 
you have to hear right view from someone else. What the Buddha said, I mean, what Sariputra is saying is, left to your own devices, you will observe the experiences of your life through the lens of wrong view forever. Unless you are a Buddha. That's how important it is to listen to and to really hear what the Buddha said and to hear it from those who carry that teaching forward because it is so counterintuitive to our immediate conditioned experience that we will believe wrongly every time. Scary, isn't it? After you think about it, it's like that's what been going on until we until we run into someone who can point out right view. And so even though the momentum of our wrong view is so strong, we can't confirm right view as soon as we hear it. We still have to practice having heard that right view. We've heard it. We're skeptical. We don't get it. It's not making sense. Certainly don't see it, but we still practice. If you practice with wise attention after having heard right view, you will eventually arrive at confirming experience, empirical knowledge of right view. But if you don't hear right view before that, you won't. Oh, that's pretty... I was surprised to see that. I was surprised to, to hear that. Because I think a lot of us think, believe, I can figure it out for myself. If I just sit down pay attention, I'm going to figure it out. Maybe. Maybe. But since you've already heard right view, <laughs> relief. You know, you already heard it. It's already in there. The right view is all of these experiences, mental, physical, emotional, uh, experiences of any of these factors in mind, is impersonal. They arise due to causes and conditions which are not you, not yours, and not under your immediate control. So, like, who's doing this, right? Yeah. Karma. Karma. Who's doing all this? Karma. Karma and intention. The karma of the past is throwing up this experience, and the karma of the present moment is responding or reacting to it. Karma is just rolling on, rolling out. And where are you in all that? Well, if you get identified with this experience, you are being reborn in this moment with this state of mind, suffering or not, and when this moment comes to an end, that you passes away. And another you is reborn in the next moment. It goes on a long time. Until right view, finally, is so solid, so so clear, and your awareness is so consistently understanding things in this way that you don't get identified with anything. This is where I get Okay. Because doesn't you have to make a decision to try to do these things? Yes. So the question is, doesn't the you of this package have to make a decision to try to develop awareness, for example? Huh? Right. Uh, yes. 
When we look down here at the bottom of volition, which is intention, we see that the function of it is to accumulate karma. Right? The next to the bottom. The function of volition, that's the deciding, the intending. If you intend to pay attention, if you intend to understand, if you intend to be mindful, you know, and then whatever it is you do to facilitate that is accumulated karma. Part of the karma that, or part of the result of that karma is right feeling. So we're not reaffirming a sense of self by making a decision, but we are accumulating karma, one of which will be strengthening of right view. Got it? No. Okay. Yeah? Then the next trap that tends to happen yeah. is I get judgmental if it's not working. If you get judgmental if it's not working, what's it? Um, Your intention. Yeah. So you have the intention to be mindful, you sit down, you have the intention to be mindful, and within 30 seconds you're spaced out. And then you say, God, I can't do this. Right. Or, or I get tight from effort. Tight from effort. Like, if I just made more effort, I'd be more mindful. If I were better at this. If I were better at this, then I'd be more mindful. I know I need a therapist. No, no, no. No, no, no. But let me just ask, anybody else ever had that kind of... This is universal. Partly it's a result of our conditioning. Our conditioning in the West is, you know, you you are an agent of your life. You have control over your life. You are responsible for your life. You know, you make decisions and you, you bear the consequences, right? Well, that's only about half true. Because there are so many conditions that we're dealing with in every moment that are sometimes more powerful than our intention. Right? And they win. They, they take the mind off in a direction other than your intention because those conditions are more powerful. One of them, and this is heading off into another chapter of the Abhidhamma, <laughs> sorry, is fascination conditioning. So we're sitting in the room and there's sight, sound, smells, taste, touch, and thoughts going on all the time. And yet, the mind that you're familiar with is picking something to pay attention to right now. Maybe you're noticing the temperature. Maybe you're noticing what I said. Maybe you're noticing the pain in your back. Maybe you're fantasizing about what's for lunch. Maybe you're remembering tomorrow's Easter and I wonder what blah, blah, blah. Maybe you're noticing the fan circling in the ceiling. You know, what's to determine what you're aware of in this moment. You ever think about that? Why? You know, why in a crowd of people does a pickpocketer only see pockets? You know, they say, in a crowd, pickpocket only sees pockets. You know, so you look around a room, you look around the experience, you look around at the present moment. What do you see? You see what you have trained your mind to see. Yeah? The things that you've been most fascinated with throughout your 
endless wandering in samsara. That's what you see over and over and over again. Yeah. So if you've got a particularly lustful mind, you look around, all you see is nice lustful, lustable objects. You know, if you have a real averse kind of, you know, pissy mind, you look around, all you see is something to be irritated about. Yeah. It's not even personal at this point. It is due to conditions, causes and conditions, karma, deeply embedded in the mind stream that you're becoming aware of. So to say that your intention is failing because you, it doesn't do, your mind doesn't do what you intend is not accurate. Not accurate. Because you never had that capacity to control the mind anyway. You're not failing at it. It's not within the power of intention to control the mind. It's just not. Right. Yeah. Or as Saito Utejaniya says, the mind is not yours. But you're responsible for it. Meaning, the mind is going to notice what it notices. Okay? You can't control that. But whatever it notices and the reaction you have to it, well, you're responsible for that. If you if you act out unskillfully, <laughs> karma is going to reinforce some tendency of conditioning. So, <clears throat> where were we? I kind of lost track. I was kind of on that, but I kind of lost track of where else we were. Where? Joy. Okay, joy, yeah. <clears throat> so, refreshing the mind. Uh, when, you, when we refresh the mind, I often say to people, you know, in, in the sitting, you sit down, you get started, and I, and I say, periodically throughout the sitting, refresh your mind. What would you do? Just kind of go, <clears throat> kind of shake, shake your mind and just say, okay, mind, okay, what? What's going on here? Because we get we get into these, you know, foggy, boggy, kind of low-lying areas of the mind, and we get stuck. We get kind of in a kind of an un, unnoticing gaze, or we get into kind of a kind of a trance-like, soporific glaze. We get lost in some kind of nothingness sometimes, and we just kind of have to kind of like, wow, what's going on here? Just kind of give your mind a shake to kind of oh, refresh the mind. Remind it really is a reminding yourself that the mind is noticing something. Wow. And if it's if it has if if the mind has gotten absorbed into gone into the experience of tranquility, for example, no perception, lost, kind of cruising along, bottom trolling. I say. It's kind of like, Unaware, comfortable, asleep, unaware. So you have to kind of rouse the mind again and say, okay, okay, okay. It's like resetting. Yeah, that's it. Reboot. You know, wake up, reboot. Reboot your mind. Oh, okay. So you refresh your mind that way. But joy does the same thing automatically when it is, uh, when the mind is purified. It reboots the mind momentarily, just every moment, so it's like clean, clean. 
Um, <laughs> so what did your mind do when you heard that? Judgment. Huh? Judgment. What else? Huh? Name the object, which is what? Phone, phone ring or hearing? Huh? Phone ring. Your mind said phone ring. Yeah. You said what? What was that? What was that? Curiosity. Yes. Anything else? You saw the tick that high? Count to three. Count to three before you were answering. <laughs> yeah. Empathy. Did anybody think? You thought of the what? Refresh button? My, oh yeah, I was an intentional like. Refresh button. Did anybody think that's nice music? Yeah. All of your perceptions are accurate. They're right, but they're because of conditioning. Whatever you whatever you had as a reaction to that or a response to that sound is a deeply conditioned. You didn't choose that. You didn't have time to choose that, how to respond. Right? It was there instantly. As soon as that sound happened, boom, there was a reaction in the mind. Did you choose to say, oh, I think I'm going to enjoy that sound. I think I'm going to judge the person who didn't turn off their cell phone. You didn't. You don't say that. It's already embedded in there. Because that's what the mind has done in the past. The perception. The sound is the sound. We all heard the same sound. But the understanding you have of that sound, your perception of it, is personal. Or personal conditioning. That's your spin. That's your spin. Mindfulness sees through the spin. Mindfulness knows hearing's happening. Without going to the, who did that? What's that sound like? Mindfulness just knows, oh, hearing's happening. Without getting caught in either uh, indulging in it with uh, attachment or with aversion. Quick, isn't it? Mind is really quick. There's not a split second between the sound happening and your recognition and reaction to it. Split second. Quicker than that, even. It's going on all the time. So mindfulness is intention. It needs intention. We have to arouse an intention, a sense of urgency and, and the energy to pay attention, to not forget the present moment, even though we don't know what the present moment is going to be. Right? So then we are arousing the energy and we're investigating. We're willing to just be with things as they are. And what we see is our conditioning. Right? We see it. You can't, you can't avoid it. You know, you're going to see your conditioning. If you have a, uh, you know, kind of a, uh, what would I call it? If you are a spiritual athlete and, you know, don't want to have any aversion, or think that somehow you should be able to avoid aversion, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. It's not possible to avoid your conditioning. It's going to come out. So we need to... We want to have a right understanding of 
the conditioning that we see coming up again and again and again. All those judgments. I was just thinking what you were saying about not having a teacher who tells you and then you practice it. Because I was thinking about the Thich Nhat Hanh, mm-hmm. where the bell brings you back home, or you wait three seconds. So practicing that the last three years, I actually changed my response. Prior to three years, I would be is that what you said to yourself, like mindfulness, come home, or something like that? I set myself up for 1230 every day with the ringtone. So ringtone is come home. But it's Thich Nhat Hanh told me to practice that. Yes. So it's sort of an interesting thing what you said, that we actually can be into redirect our conditional response. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I mean, that's what practice is, is really planting the intention to be not forgetful. Right? We're planting the intention to be not forgetful. And even though we can't make it happen, every time we have the opportunity, we keep planting the seed, planting the seed. It eventually has an effect. You know, we, do, we do decondition or weaken the habits, and we create or condition a different habit. You know, more, more awareness or more, more wakefulness in this case. Or a different response to, uh, or a different reaction to the stimulus of the sound. Last night, um, there was some conversation around self-pity, and you talked about when it came up for you, and you recognized it. You just recognized it every time. Is that all it takes to decondition it? So last night, uh, for those of you who weren't here, for those of you who were here, you can just (coughs) take a nap. Uh, I was talking about, at some point, when I was in Burma practicing, recognizing the voice of self-pity. The voice that said, oh, poor me, blah, 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 blah. And that once I saw it, I was amazed that I'd never seen it before. And, but then once I saw it, I realized, oh, I, I, I got caught in that kind of mental state quite frequently in the past, but just didn't, didn't recognize it. And once I then saw it or recognized it, then I started noticing it all the time or or as often as it was happening. I would notice it. And in time, oh, it, it stopped. I don't see it. I don't see it anymore. It doesn't arise. And the question is, is just seeing it what makes it stop? Right? No. It's understanding it. Seeing, being mindful doesn't stop things from it's how we understand it because we can be mindful and still understand things wrongly okay that's kind of a I want to be a little bit careful about that in a moment of mindfulness you're understanding things correctly but delusion is of two kinds there's the delusion of not knowing like I didn't know self-pity didn't know totally ignorant of it didn't know it and then when it arose there was some wrong understanding of it. I saw it, but I understood it wrongly. It was only after I spent time with it, enough time with it, to understand, oh, this is the nature of self-pity. This is what it does. And remember last night I was saying, this is what self-pity does. Grunk. You collapse. You collapse into it. And this is what samadhi does. <coughs> self-pity arises, and samadhi goes, that's me. Get absorbed. Slump. Mindfulness or uh, awareness goes, self-pity being known, self-pity is being known, and there's not the identification with it as 
I'm self-pitying. There's whoop, there's the awareness. So when I say samadhi enters into and vipassana pulls back from, that's what I mean. When you're practicing samadhi practice, if if self-pity comes up, you get absorbed in it. If you're practicing vipassana and self-pity comes up, you go, whoa, oh, I get it. You begin to understand it. You begin to understand how it arises, what it does to the mind, what kind of thoughts you have because of it, what it what it conditions in the body for sensations, how long it lasts, how it leaves the mind. When you understand this, then you kind of, it's not like you anticipate, but you see the conditions of your life unfolding in a certain way. And when self-pity is going to be, or could be a reaction to something, you see it before it ever happens. You don't, you don't, you don't go there anymore. When something arises that would normally have given have conditioned a self-pitying response or reaction, you don't go there. You see those conditions before they can, before they give rise to self-pity. My question was, uh, is there a way to really know it while you're being mindful of it? Because when I think of absorbing into something, it's about sort of feeling it physically. And is there a way to sort of really understand that, sort of take that texture while being apart from it? So the question is, to really feel something, you kind of go into it and you feel it, is it possible to feel it and be aware of it at the same time? That's what you're saying, right? Is it? Well, I, I, I think Somebody's I'm shaking their head, yeah, sure. Is it? Yeah? You can do that? So it's a balance between subjective and objective. There's a feeling it subjectively and an awareness of it objectively. Okay. What do you think? What do you think? Does that sound reasonable? Is that your experience? I wonder if they can exist simultaneously. This is a three-dimensional instruction now, a visual instruction. <laughs> what do you see? A bell ringer thing. What else do you see? Black stick. Black stick. What else do you see? Hand. Huh? Hand. No, 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 no. This thing. <laughs> the thing in the hand. What do you see? So there's a bell ringer stick, black stick. Brown spray. Huh? Shape. I, 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 go ahead. One at a time. Blackness. Blackness. Shape. Shape. Huh? Hardness. No, I feel hardness. You don't feel hardness. It's straight. It's a straight line. Straight. Okay. What else? Round. Round. Yeah, if you look at it that way. <laughs> Round. Anything else? Size. Huh? Size. <clears throat> size. Size. You see it's size. Small, we'll say. And the light of it. Okay. Now, we've had a lot of, you know, we've had a dozen different things being observed here. Right? Which one's right? They're all right. <laughs> They're all right. None of them are wrong. But there's really only one thing here. So, Jana, is there one thing or a dozen things here? One thing. One thing of which you can know a dozen things, right? 
Okay, so now you have just answered your own question. Is it possible to experience something, to feel it, and to be aware of it at the same time? You can do it. Your mind can do two things at once, right? Just like it can, it can recognize the shape and the color at the same time. In fact, you can't recognize the shape without the color. If there's no color here, you don't know the shape of this thing, right? If there's no shape, you wouldn't know the color of it, right? Okay, so is that the same thing as we were talking about the kind of the balance between subjective and objective, where you feel something subjectively and you know it objectively at the same time? Can you do that? I think so. I think I tend to get a lot, like I absorb into it and get lost in it. This is a good observation. This is the problem. <laughs> this is the problem. We do. Actually, when we, when we let our attention absorb into something in order to feel it more what, intimately, more carefully, more sensitively, more, more contact-wise, huh? we, we often leave, or, or the... the Vedana becomes strong and the perception becomes weak. When perception becomes weak, soon we're not going to recognize what we're feeling. We're lost in the feeling. Right? That's samadhi. Samadhi doesn't want this... Samadhi doesn't thrive on a clear perception of the unique characteristic, the uniqueness of that particular experience. So that uh, in order to practice vipassana, are you with me? Are you losing? At least some of you. Okay. Uh, vipassana requires that you sustain the clarity of your perception of what it is you're feeling. Because if you get absorbed in the feeling, you just go to sleep. You just get lost in it. You know, you you don't perceive it. You just enter this tranquil state of pleasant feeling without knowing and clearly recognizing, oh, pleasantness is being known. Vipassana goes, okay, pleasantness, pleasantness, this is it, being known. It's, it's, it's right there, it's with it. It's feeling the pleasantness and it's knowing that pleasantness is being known. You run into another issue with that? Okay, so when an unpleasant feeling, physical or emotional, arises and you're aware of it, you get sucked into the aversion. Okay, now I need to borrow a hand here because this is a, a, a three-dimensional visual instruction that needs three hands. Here's the unpleasantness, right? Here's the awareness, right? Awareness of unpleasantness. So unpleasantness is being known, right? But there is a filter right here between the awareness and the unpleasantness called aversion. Aversion. You're seeing, or awareness is seeing the unpleasantness through the lens of aversion, right? Okay? Now, the trick with Vipassana is the filter of aversion becomes the new object. Okay? Right? So, 
Right? Now this other this other unpleasantness, no longer the object. You're no longer in the present moment, frankly. Now you're into aversion, being known. The Pasana would say would say the being known is what you want to work on. Whether it's a unpleasantness or aversion, doesn't matter. It can be unpleasantness, it can be the breath, it can be sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, sensations, pleasant, unpleasant, gross, subtle, familiar, novel, it doesn't matter. What's important is this. And if there's a filter of one of the defilements that is distorting your perception of the object, then that becomes a new object. Right? Did you get it? Clear as hands, huh? <laughs> How did I know the how did I learn about self pity? Without without going into it, as she's saying, you know, going into the going into it, but but keeping my perception really strong. Because if you if the perception weakens, you get absorbed in, in the experience. You know, the self pity, the collapse, the kind of moving. But if the perception that 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 is the voice of recognition I see what's going on. There's this feeling. I know it. There's this knowing of it. If the knowing weakens, it's just like this. Uh, <coughs> you know, self-pity being known. Self-pity being known. Self-pity being known. That's like getting pretty close to absorbing it. What Vipassana practice is going to ask you to do is self-pity being known. Self-pity being known. Self-pity being known. You're still in touch with this self-pity. But you're emphasizing or you're strengthening the knowing, awareness part of the mind, or the mind, the, that activity of the moment. So we want to be careful not to get absorbed in the object, but rather to strengthen the clarity of the awareness and, and acknowledge that. So when you get too absorbed in this, you lose the awareness. If you are kind of like a scientist staring at something, this becomes so strong that you obliterate this. That's trying too hard. That's called striving. 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 You're trying so hard, just like, and you don't really feel anything. You're just in your head. Oh, that's self-pity. But no, no, no actual feeling of the self-pity at the time that it occurs. Yeah. Maybe it would be useful to define what you mean by right samadhi. Because like, I think uh, it's a little confusing to me to equate samadhi just, right samadhi just with absorption. And uh, yeah, and, and maybe you want to do it in the afternoon more, yeah. but about kind of uh, keeping Vipassana and samadhi as two distinct uh, sure. approaches as opposed yeah. to understanding the importance of samadhi and Vipassana practice. Yeah. So I. Uh, I will talk about Samadhi's afternoon. It's one of the tranquilizing, and we'll do that. But remind me, in case I don't make a clear distinction, of what Vipassana Samadhi, how Vipassana Samadhi is different and similar to Samatha Samadhi. Okay. Okay. 
there's Vipassana Samadhi and there's Samatha Samadhi. Now, you know, in the Buddha's actual sutras, he does not distinguish between Samatha and Vipassana. He mentions the two, but he doesn't say, this practice is for developing that, and this practice is for developing that. It's only in commentaries after the Buddha, where they really made the distinction between these are Samatha practices and these are Vipassana practices, exclusive. That's why Bhanti Ji, for example, he says, you know, they're, ha- they're both happening all the time. Right? Even though you can enter Samatha Samadhi, jhanas, or in the Vipassana tradition of Mahasi out of Burma, we talk about the Vipassana jhanas. They're not really jhanas in a Samatha sense. <laughs> Don't glaze over on me <laughs> But they're the equivalent stability of mind. I'm going, to th- I'm going to talk about samadhi in terms of stability of mind this afternoon. Uh, did somebody else have a question over here? I, I was notified at the break that my panoramic vision has a weak peripheral right. <laughs> it was uh, kind of a little weak in picking up activity over here. So I just uh, <laughs> I gotta, I gotta re- reorient the center of my panoramic vision to about here. <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to put together. I know that you and many other teachers have said the mind can only pay attention to one thing at a time, and things might come really, really fast, so the mind might oscillate from thing to thing. I'm sort of trying to put that together with this idea of the panoramic vision, and I'm on the break in conversation with another yogi who said. Um, this is why it's against the law to text and drive. <laughs> because we're not very good at fully paying attention at texting and driving. And the consequences are lethal. Uh, and so that kind of brings me back to my hunch, you know, that for me, if there's too much going on here, my attention can't keep up with it. And so, again, I, I, I'm asking for clarification between these two. So the question is, can you pay attention to more than one thing at a time? There's a couple different ways to answer that question. One is, the texts say, blah, 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 blah. But your experience may some, say something else. So we have to uh, kind of understand what it is we're actually looking for. Are we looking for the authoritative answer or are we looking at a way of understanding our experience? The second one. Okay. So if we're looking at a way to understand our experience, then if you look in the night sky and you can see the moon, the full moon, and you can see the stars surrounding it at the same time, then it's clear. Your understanding says you can be aware of more than one thing at a time. Right? So, if that's the way you understand things, then you should really know this is what I see and can confirm from my own experience. And hold that lightly because with increased power of mind, concentration, and increased clarity of perception, sanya, perception, 
uh, and momentum of awareness, you may have a different understanding. So we don't want to lock into an understanding prematurely when our mind is at uh, one level, say, of samadhi and wisdom. But it is important to know what you have confirmed from or what you believe based on your own experience, your own empirical experience. And the books would say whatever the books say. But the books saying what they say, it may be important to read that and to know that, but it's more important to know what your own experience is. Did I, did I evade answering that question? Okay. <laughs> I've got a similar question. I'm the one that asked James McCurry. <laughs> you're, you're just going to have to speak up. Yeah. But um, it's similar. In Upandita saying, act like an old person when you practice. And you're saying that Tejaniyas just go as fast as you want. You're, you know, if your mindfulness is there, you'll hit it all. But the question is, you know, is it, well, what serves your mindfulness better, I suppose, and go to What serves your mindfulness better? You know, you could, I mean, if you're, do you make a choice, you know, say, in, like, I have a thing of walking meditation, sure, should I walk fast, should I walk slow? You know, is that the answer? Whatever serves your mindfulness, go that speed? Or, like, in life, you don't have a choice, do you choose to slow down your life? Or you're saying, does it matter? Go as fast as you want. You can be mindful of both. What's your experience, Joanne? I have had deeper experiences of concentration when I go slow. Fine. But I've never tried the other way. <laughs> I like the way you put that. I've had deeper experiences of concentration when I go slow. That that I, I, I would agree with that. Yeah. And concentration is samadhi. Samatha. Tranquility. Tranquility of mind, tranquility of uh, body as a result of mind. But it isn't insight, and it isn't understanding. So, I mean, if you want to develop samadhi and tranquility, then you're saying you find that going slow is most effective. Anybody want to agree or disagree with that? Agree? Disagree? Okay. So, now Vipassana. How are you going to gain understanding about the nature of walking? How are you going to gain understanding about the nature of the body and the mind in the walking process? Do you have to walk slow? Can you walk fast and pay attention and learn about it? Well, I was originally told to walk slow, so it's kind of a new thing. You can walk fast if you want. <laughs> I sort of understood it that way. So I'm very open to the opposite. And You'll have I, to try it. If you try it, then you'll know, right? And I tried a bit, and it yeah. was pretty good. Yeah. And I love the freedom of it. Yeah. Okay. I love the freedom. Okay. Mark. Well, I'm wondering if part of the questions that people are asking have to do like, 
Uh, I mean, it's about continuity of attention regardless, right? So then it's a question, what's the object? And it may be what you're really pointing to. Maybe you could talk more about it, see if like how the mind chooses its object. I mean, you meant, you did a little bit, but it might be good to maybe make that more explicit. Because when you slow down in walking, you know, it allows you to have continuity with the particular object, like the, all the intricate movements of the leg and feet. For example, yeah. But when you're walking past, you can still, you still need continuity of mindfulness, but it's a different object, so you're not required to go slowly with that object. Yeah. That's true. So what Mark is talking about is the continuity of awareness, or the continuity of mindfulness, right? And if you, if the attention, awareness, or mindfulness takes a recurring object like sensations of the breath or sensations of walking as its object, the subjective feeling is one of great, great tranquility. That's the subjective feeling. But the continuity of the uh, awareness, the continuity of the mindfulness, uh, is what we're really working on. If the objects are changing in every moment, for example, from a sight to a sound to a thought to a sensation to a blah, 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 but the continuity is at the same rate as a single object, what's going on there? Which is which? Is which? We would say that if you have a same object, like the breath or uh, some sensations in a narrow range of the foot or the belly, and you recurringly attend to that with a frequency like this, you'll have one kind of experience. If the same frequency of awareness is happening, but the objects are a sensation, a thought, a sound, a this, a that, a memory, a plan, a da 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 then you'll have a different, different experience. Right? The first leads to samadhi, or tranquility, deep tranquility, calmness, and the second leads to understanding. Wisdom. So you say the second is better. <laughs> <laughs> That's your spin. No, I'm saying that it leads to a different knowledge. Because the knowledge of samadhi, the knowledge of jhana, is very important. And the Buddha has praised people who practice that kind of practice. You know, in the knowledge of the mind that comes from developing that level of absorption and tranquility is really significant. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, an exalted state of mind that, that you can't, it's not easy to reach. It's not easy to have that knowledge of the mind, the capacity of the mind. And when you practice the Vipassana and you, the knowledge that you gain from that is different than Samadhi knowledge. It's the knowledge of the impermanence of things. It's the knowledge of the dukkha characteristic of things. It's the knowledge of the impersonal or the anatta, uh, essenceless nature of things. That's a different kind of knowledge. has different consequences. Yeah, they're both good. Do you need a certain minimum, modicum, she said, minimum, of samadhi to do Vipassana practice? 
Anybody want to weigh in on that? It helps a lot because uh, I think otherwise, I, I at least am sort of a scattered mind, and so sometimes doing the often of what I'm not sure what my object is, or it's always changing. Well, so then my experience of it always changing is that I don't know. I get Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna I wanna diagram what you just said. Okay. So <laughs> Okay. Now it's not just this object, it's all five of them. There's a lot of things being known. Right? And you're saying, I get confused. Right? Confusion is this filter right here. If you recognize the confusion, no problem. This is going on, flurry, flurry, scurry, scurry, but confusion. That's what you see. If you heighten, if you expand the catalog or the, the list of things you recognize, because you recognize, you told me about it, you said, I feel confused, but you didn't, you weren't aware of it. You were still trying to be aware of these things. Yeah. And you were missing the obvious thing. The most obvious thing was the confusion. Right? Missed it. I told her, you know, last night, I lived with self-pity for a long time. Never recognized it. Just like you live with confusion. Don't recognize it. How are we going to recognize this which we've been living with for so long and see it for the first time? This is the challenge of Vipassana practice. How are we going to see the obvious that we've overlooked for so long? This over here? Don't worry about this over here. Catch this here. Recognize this. <laughs> what was the question? <laughs> I, I I don't think we can answer that definitively, because uh, what I'm what I'm trying to point to is the misunderstanding. I think there's a pretty prevalent misunderstanding about the nature of samadhi and the nature of insight. So uh, I don't want to answer it from that, from the point of view of the question. But this afternoon we're going to talk more about samadhi, and especially Vipassana samadhi. Yeah. And then you'll have more input answer to, to answer your question. Yeah. You mean the self-righteousness? I'm angry. I should be angry. They're doing and something. I'm on. Because I know that I can like a child. I am not. But I was. But, but I, but anyway, seeing that, having that, you know, just being able to be more exact. 
This is this is really. I mean, this is the task of vipassana practice: is to see the obvious that hasn't yet been recognized. It really it's a challenge because you can't you can't you don't know what you're looking for. You know, if you keep looking at what you know, you don't give an opportunity for what you don't yet know to to appear. It's mine. Chronic pain. And, yeah, and, and I found that going at it with the mind, going into it, going yes. through it. Yes. Um, then helped me to see the filter of aversion because once I could get into the pain fully, deeply, the fear of it was that I was able to let go of it because I realized, oh, okay, I'm not going to Do you know what I mean? Sure. But like once you can really get into it, yes. then you go into it what what actually what actually happens you know you've got this pain and then you say you go into it with somebody but with no aversion that's right that's the key because what I heard you say is you uh, there's this pain and, and and there is some kind of like I hate it I don't like it I want to get rid of that but but at the beginning but then you said you took your you let your awareness go in to actually feel that without aversion. That's mindfulness. That's mindfulness. That's not just samadhi. There's wisdom there because you're feeling the nature, the unique nature of that pain, right? Without any any hindrance in the mind. That's vipassana. Yeah. And then when you see that, you know, if the, if there's any attempt at the mind to to spin a aversive story about it. Uh, you see it, it doesn't happen. Why? Because the, the wisdom factor is too strong to let that that defilement in. So you just with and this this is what this is what the mindfulness is. Mindfulness is the, the not floating away, not wobbling, and it's guarding the mind. Meaning you're confronting the object and you're not letting in the defilements. So you're actually going right into and because of it, you can have this strong, strong perception. You have a very clear, very clear perception of the very nature of that sensation, right? It's it's aching, it's hardness, it's flickering, heat. It's what you know, just the real. That's good insight. That's good insight practice. It's also good. It's good stability of mind. It's so good samadhi. So that isn't samadhi. No, that's samadhi. That's the okay. samadhi. Oh, okay. That's Vipassana Samadhi because you're you're no, you're noticing <laughs> you're noticing you're noticing the quality of the pain. If you weren't noticing the quality of those flickering sensations, then you could just be 
in Samatha Samadhi. Samatha Samadhi doesn't recognize the unique characteristic of those sensations. But Vipassana Samadhi does. You laugh. Why? 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 I always thought that Vipassana Samadhi was the samadhi is in the the samadhi is in the continuity of awareness as Mark mentioned that's just a generic that's the nature of samadhi the depth of samadhi or the degree of samadhi or the strength of samadhi is dependent on the continuity of awareness now what the object is of your awareness will determine whether it is a Vipassana Samadhi or a Samatha Samadhi. If you're observing the unique flavor called the Sabhava, the unique flavor of that momentary experience, then you'll develop Vipassana. If you're going, if you're observing the kind of the conceptual, general experience or knowledge of that experience, then you'll go into Samatha. Samatha Samadhi. What would be an example of that? Samatha Samadhi? Uh, okay. When we, when we breathe in through the nostrils, because this is this called Anapanasati, huh? we're paying attention to the breath at the nostrils. If you're feeling the actual experiential texture of each sensation as you breathe in and out, you'll develop the Vipassana. But if you just have a sense of breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out, you conceptually know when you're breathing in and it's accurate, and when you're breathing out and it's accurate, but you're not feeling the actual momentary textures of it, then you'll develop samatha samadhi. Samatha samadhi is stability of mind on what we would say is an unchanging object, the knowledge or the concept of the breath. But Vipassana Samadhi arises on the same degree or same continuity of awareness of changing objects, like tingling pressure, heat, cold, you know, sensations like that. Yeah. Right? That's the concept. So, we're holding our hand out in front of it. Just 
Just know you're holding your hand out in front of you. Just keep knowing it. You're holding your hand out in front of you. Just keep knowing that. So don't feel it. Just know that you're holding your hand out in front of you. Right? Don't feel it. Just hold your hand out in front of you. And keep knowing that. There are people that develop the ability to do this for days on end. No, there, there are those, some of those practitioners in India. Oh, they'll stand on one leg for hours, days. You know, because they're they're not really experiencing it. They just have the idea in their mind. Oh, and they get absorbed in that idea. You can hold your hand out there forever because you're absorbed in the idea. But the pasna would say, "Okay, this is called holding your hand out in front of you." Hey. <laughs> 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 now, what's that feel like? What's the exact actual experience? What do you actually feel? Uh, I feel some aching here, some coolness here, some tingling here, a little shaking there, a little vibrating there, right? When you get really into that experience of shaking, aching, hardness, tightness, pressure, feeling, throbbing, bumping, bump, 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 you forget holding arm in front. Gone. Ceases to exist. There's no time, there's no arm, there's no hand, there's no in front, there's no back, there's no space, there's nothing. There's just throbbing, pulsing, vibrating, tingling, tightening, right? That's Vipassana. That will lead to wisdom about the nature of holding a hand. But hold... Okay. <laughs> That's the difference. Vipassana has to aim, has to be uh, experiencing things at that level. Samatha has to be experiencing things at the concept level. Right. <laughs> that makes you feel the Vipassana practice makes you feel disoriented. Yeah. Why? Because they start to connect with just the sensations, just the feelings. Sure. And then and then things start to bring apart. Sure, that's right. Because what happens at a certain level of the Vipassana practice, it takes a while, but as you as you pay attention to all the sensations in the body in an ongoing way, and you pay attention to all the mental stuff that's in, in an ongoing way, you stop putting it together into a concept of me sitting like this, having this kind of experience. And all that activity of the mind that makes a concept, conceptual understanding of it, fades away into the background. And your mindfulness is just with the immediacy of experience. So you don't know whether you've got a body, what size it is, what shape it is. You don't, you don't know that. You don't, you don't the mind doesn't have time to process things into that conceptual knowledge. And so you just have experiences of body and mind happening somewhere in vast empty space. No wonder it's disorienting, right? And so when you think, you know, sometimes you're sitting, everybody's had this experience. You're sitting, and you think, I wonder where my hands are. <laughs> you know, it's like, I wonder where my hands are. It's like, God, I can't feel them even. You know, I feel some sensations, but I can't tell if they're like this or like that, or are they touching each other, or the thumbs are, I don't know. can't tell, right? If you open your eyes and look, or if you move your hands in order to do it, then you come back into conceptual reality. Boom. 
you're no longer in Vipassana reality. You're no longer in the absolute experiential reality. You've kind of broken the spell, so to speak, or you, you've come back under the spell of concept. So Vipassana practice says, when you have that kind of experience and you lose your body size, shape, form, location, don't open your eyes, don't move your body. Keep going. Yeah, take it apart. Take apart those concepts so that you can really get comfortable and, and, and live with the live within the reality of experience rather than the reality of concept. This is the difference between relative and absolute reality, the views of reality. The relative view of reality is body, mind, the size, the shape, dislocation. Experientially, it's gone. It's just stuff. Concept of hunger? <laughs> Even looking at your watch? Okay, I, I thought you might just be conceptually hungry, like, oh, it's a quarter to one time to eat. But if you're really feeling the, the sensations of discomfort in the belly, then that's insight. You've had the profound insight. Hunger has a vision. <laughs> oh, yeah, we've been jabbering on for a while. <laughs> Why don't we take a break? Ah, one last comment. So in your understanding of self-pity, you use both types of, of uh, concept, of the conceptual and of the more physical sensations. Sure. Uh, well, I, mean, I, was the too, sure, I was practicing Vipassana. Right. And so I saw not only the physical, you know, collapsing energy of, of this this mind state. But I recognized the mind state of self-pity, you know, and its feeling, how that felt. And then the story about it. And then there was the, rec, you know, the retroflective, reflective, reflective experience of like, oh, I remember this feeling from many times in the past, but I never saw it, never recognized it. So really, it's practicing insight because it was all pixelated. But when I attributed it to a me in the past that was experiencing it, that's something. That's more. That's more conceptual. Yeah, not direct experience. It's remembering. Right? Yeah. But in the moment of recognizing, it was direct, right then, right that moment. And then I say, Oh, now that I see this, I I've seen this a lot. Do, 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 do. Okay. Anybody fall asleep yet? No. Okay. That's good. Anybody over there fall asleep? Okay, so we'll take an hour. It's 10 of 1. We'll be back at 10 of 2. Uh, be sure to eat a Vipassana uh, meal, not a Samatha meal. nourishment. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.